Tom Cruise, and all those people we wanted, and we want it now. We have a hunger for news, and we want to know what's going on in our world as soon as it breaks. I thought about that, and I thought about the words that we hear when we're watching television, whether we're watching a show or a, uh, some sort of movie on, on TV or listening to songs on the radio, and the DJ or the talk show host or, or uh, the person on the TV says, stand by for breaking news. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, my attention is fixed to what's going to be shared next. Usually when they break into that, something important is about to be shared with the people that are watching. I thought about that phenomenon of breaking news, and I found a definition that I like. It says, breaking news is a current event that broadcasters feel warrants the interruption of scheduled programming in order to report its details. It is used oftenly uh, loosely assigned to the most significant story of the day, and it is a story that will be, in fact, covered live. Now, you've lived on this earth very long. You've seen that kind of report. Stand by for breaking news. You've seen those. It started out on the radio. It used to come out on the radio. If you are old enough to remember this, on December 2nd, the 7th, 1941, at 2.26 p.m., you would have been listening to a football game between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants, and they would have broken away in the first quarter to announce a special report. ABC was the first to break the special report, and they said that the Japanese Empire had bombed Pearl Harbor, and they broke in for that football game. Of course, we know that the TV became the greatest medium that we know of advancing news. And if you were watching television, in fact, if you were watching CBS at 12.31 on November 22nd, 1963, you would have been watching an installment of As the World Turns. I had no idea that soap operas were that old. As the World Turns. And while two people are having a conversation, you can see this uh, breaking news on your uh, internet. If you were to be watching that show, a uh, bulletin comes across and says CBS Special Report. And the next thing you see is a flurry of activity in the CBS newsroom, and Walter Cronkite is sitting at the desk, and he says, we have a special bulletin. It's from Dallas, Texas. Reports are that John F. Kennedy has been shot. Many of you remember exactly where you were when you heard that news, when that breaking report came out. I thought about some of the ones that have happened in my own time when I was four years old. K-I-R-O-T-V in Washington State sent out a report during their morning show that announced that Mount St. Helens had erupted with the force of the atomic bombs combined of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing 57 people. Then I began to think about other breakthroughs. Some of it happened before my own eyes. I remember as a fourth grade uh, student in Hinkley Elementary School being taken for a special assembly to watch Crystal McCullough and uh, the astronauts of the Challenger going up in space. And it was great. I was so excited to miss a class period just to watch a space shuttle go up. And I remember we watched it, and for about 70 seconds we were in awe of the space shuttle moving into the sky, and then something terrible happened. I remember the, the, the teachers coming in, turning the TVs off and saying, well, don't you go back to your classroom and we will explain what has taken place. I remember watching that. I remember where I was sitting when that took place. Of course, I remember uh, when uh, 
1991. I was a freshman in high school, and I remember uh, eating and finishing up dinner, getting ready to come here to Village for youth group. And I remember Peter Jennings breaking in and announcing that there are what seems to be explosions happening over Baghdad. And I remember them breaking the news that the first Gulf War had started. I remember where I was at. I was in my living room. I remember on June 17, 1994, watching an NBA Finals game at 6.45 p.m. The Finals was turned off to my dismay to find a white Bronco on the L.A. freeway. <laughs> I remember where I was at. I wanted to watch a basketball game and we watched a guy named O.J. Simpson fleeing from the police. Breaking news. Of all those moments, there's one moment that, that I remember that defines more of who I am than any other event in my history. I remember, and it's so, it's so incredible that I use this illustration today, because 17 years ago, tomorrow, I walk into my high school, and just like any other day, I remember there was some commotion at my house, there was some issues going on, and I had to get on the bus so early, I didn't really understand what was going on. I went to school, and I didn't think much of it until I got to school. And I remember going to my first hour class and remembering there's something different about today. What's going on? People are talking. People are, are sharing things. And, and I seem to be involved in these conversations. But as soon as I would listen, people would be quiet. And I remember wondering what was going on, looking at the clock as I normally did in class, waiting for that class to be done. And I remember I'm going to find out what's going on. And that first hour class was done. And I remember walking out of the class, and I remember walking to my locker, and out of the corner of my eye, I see my dad at the end of the hallway. Now that seems odd. My dad usually didn't show up to school. And he's there, and he's with the principal and the guidance counselor. Now that meant something bad. When your dad is with the principal and the guidance counselor, and as I walked up, of course, you're going to go see what your dad is there for. I walked up to my dad, and I see that all three of them and I said, man, what's going on? And my dad says, Tim, we need to go home. Something bad has happened. And I remember saying, well, Dad, what's, what's happened? And he says, I don't want to talk to you now about it. Let's, let's go. Let's get home. Your mom and your brother are at home. Let's, let's go talk about it. And I remember demanding, I want to know the news. And I remember my dad said, as we were walking out of the school, I remember the spot I was at back this week. I was at my old high school dropping some things off. And I was remembering the place where my dad said, your brother Chris has been in an accident. And I remember sitting there saying, tell me more. I want to know more. What, what is happening? Give me the news. Break it to me. And I remember the spot just before the front doors of the school. He says, Tim, he says, Chris is dead. And I remember being brokenhearted. And I remember saying, this cannot be. This, it can't be the case. And yet I look back now, 17 years, tomorrow morning at 9.15, I got the breaking news that I had lost my oldest brother. And I was brokenhearted. And I remember that, that what I was doing, I remember what, what I was thinking. I remember that's what breaking news does to us. It reminds us of what we were doing. It reminds us who we were with. I remember that whole ride home. I remember seeing things and hearing things that I would have never thought of. And I remember them as clear as day. As a 31-year-old now, I remember what I was thinking when I was 14. That's what breaking news does to us as people. It stops us in our tracks. 
Now, I know that there are many in our place that have gotten breaking news. And breaking news isn't always bad. Some of you have received great breaking news. You've received news as, as your son or your daughter has come after dating a certain fella or, or lady for some time. And they come in and they are smiling and they're glowing and they say, we're engaged. And that's great breaking news. Other times you, you get a call from your spouse that says, hey honey, come home early. I, I need to talk with you. It's one of two things. Either you left something out that you shouldn't have. Or two, she's going to tell you that she's pregnant. That's great breaking news. For others, it's breaking news. Uh, uh, later this spring, we'll hear people that will be opening up the mail. Our young adults that will get breaking news that they've been accepted to a certain college or university. But not all news is good. We know that some of you have received terrible breaking news. You've received news that your spouse comes in and says, you know what? I'm done. I don't want anything more to do with you, and it's over. That's devastating. I know that there's other people that have received news in the medical office where you're sitting there and you've walked in and everything's going great. And then the doctor says, well, the test came back and it's cancer. The test came back and it's this debilitating disease. And what was a great day became a devastating day. For some, you've heard the news that a friend or a family member's been in an accident. And for some of you, even just like me, you've heard that you've lost a loved one or a friend. We live in a world of breaking news. But praise be to God that the news, the greatest news of all time, isn't delivered by CBS or NBC or CNN, but it is delivered by God Himself. The good news of Jesus Christ is the greatest news that we have ever been given. And it's breaking news for everyone who is still in sin that one day sees that they need Jesus in their life. This breaking news came to Paul on the road to Damascus, where he is blinded by the presence of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was breaking news that transformed that man's life. We live in a world that is hungry for news, but sadly in our world today, we don't listen to the greatest breaking news that has come from God. There are three things I see in our text this morning out of Romans 1 when we look at this idea of God's breaking news for a broken world. As we look at this gospel, we see three things that we must be made aware of. The first thing is, is we see that this breaking news comes to a world seduced by sin. It comes to a world seduced by sin. Think about this for a moment. When we watch TV and one of the anchors comes on and says, breaking news, the special report, we stop what we're doing and we listen to what they have to say. Yet God's got some news. God's got some incredible news. And what does the world say? Ah, too busy for it. Oh, you know what? Let me get back to you. You know what? It's not Sunday. I don't want to hear that news today. We push it away. Why is that? Why is it that when God speaks, the people of this world don't listen? The Bible makes it clear. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians for a moment. If you're in Romans, go one book to your right, and you'll find the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why is it that when God speaks, people don't understand? Or people don't listen? The answer is in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. This is what Paul says to the church at Corinth in his first letter. He says, For the message of the cross 
is foolishness. What's the message of the cross? The message of the cross is the gospel. The same gospel that Paul is talking about in Romans 1, the gospel of God is the message of the cross. That Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross of Calvary to give us eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says it is foolishness to those who are perishing. So when you're sitting across the table at a family reunion, or you're at your work, or you're with a friend, and they sit there and say, that, that God stuff? What is that? That's crazy thought. To think a man lived 2,000 years ago, that he lived a perfect life, that he was the Son of God, that he died on the cross, and that the blood that was shed was applied to you? Come on. It's easier to believe that aliens landed in Roswell than it is to believe that. Why? Because it is foolishness to those who are perishing. The Bible says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, turn the page over if you need to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Why is this the case? Why is it foolishness to man? 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 tells us, because the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. If I want to listen to WGN radio, I have to turn to 720 AM. If I turn to 700 AM, I will not hear the message of WGN. Likewise, for the unbeliever to hear the message of God, they must be tuned in to the right place. And that comes by the grace of God. As grace opens our eyes, we're able to tune into the, the message. And the Bible says that God's grace has appeared to all men, teaching them to deny ungodliness and worldly thoughts and to put our minds on Christ Jesus. We have to be tuned in to the right station to hear what he has to say. Well, what does this involve? What involves three things this morning from this first point? And that is, first we see that the seduction involves the longing of men. It involves the longing of man or humanity. We have the desire as human beings. A desire to be involved in something greater than ourselves. The great uh, philosopher uh, Pascal said these words. He said that man has a God-shaped vacuum within himself that only God can fill. Some of you came to know Christ because that vacuum became too much for you to bear, and you said, I need to find it. Socrates, the philosopher, said, oh, that someone would arise and show us God. You know, that is our mindset. That is our desire, that someone would just show us God. And the reason why there are so many religions and so many uh, different pursuits of God in so many different ways is that you and I as humanity are hungry to see God. We want Him. We want to see Him. We want that place in our hearts to be filled. The problem is that that longing of humanity isn't a bad thing. I believe it is a God-created thing because we are made in the image of God. That there's a longing that we would be with the one who created us. That we would long for it. The problem is, is we've been seduced by sin. And that brings us to a second thing, and that involves the lust that we long to gratify. The lust that we long to gratify. Unfortunately, because of our sin nature, when we see this place in our hearts that only God can fill, we find ourselves desiring to fill it. That's noble. 
That's what God has created us for. We have a need, and we want to we want to fill that need. The problem is, is we look to the world and we say, "What can fill that need for me?" Instead of looking at God, we look at things like possessions and pleasures and power and pride, and we say, "You know what? If I can just get enough sex, that will take care of it. That will fill my need. If I can just get enough money, that will take care of it, and I won't have any other needs. If I can just find happiness and joy and fill it in my heart, then I will be fine." But the Bible says, in fact, Romans one says that although we knew God, we did not glorify God. We didn't believe Him to be God. Instead, we traded God for the things of this world. Things like sports. Things like shopping. Things like our home. Things like our children. And instead of giving God the praise that He deserves and the worship, we turn it into other things. And we pursue other things. And the Bible says that God gives us over to those things. He says, you know what? You want it? Have it. Take it. Eat all you want of it. But you'll never be filled. It's like drinking salt water. You will only become more and more thirsty. So lest that be gratified, finally we see the lost condition that it brings us to. It leads us to a lost condition. Here's the paradox of it all. Here's God. God reveals himself to us. God says, I can take care of your needs. I can fulfill the desires of your heart. I can give you all that you long for. And there's God. And then there's man. And man says, you know what, God, great offer, but I'm going to find something better. And instead of pursuing the Creator, I'm going to pursue the created things. So I'm going to go after that other stuff, God. And what happens is, is we don't get closer to God. The one who has the answer, we're running away from Him. And we're pursuing the other things of this world instead of God. And you know where that leaves us? That leaves us in our sin. In fact, in the book of Philippians, sorry, Ephesians, turn there for a moment. If you're in the Romans, the Corinthians, group, you're right to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us what condition we find ourselves in. Ephesians chapter 2, at the start of the chapter, verses 1 through 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is what it says. This is Paul speaking again to the church at Ephesus. As for you, speaking to believers, he's speaking to us today, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Why? Because we used to live a certain way when we followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who are we following? But we were pursuing our own ways. Why? Because we were seduced by the devil. We were seduced by sin. And what happens? We're dead. We're dead in our sin and our trespasses. Meaning we've got a death sentence against us. And we're following the ways of the devil. Now look at what it says. All of us lived among them at one time. Meaning other people who were dead in their transgressions and sin. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Following its desires and thoughts. Well, what happened to us as human beings? Likewise. Like the rest, we are by nature objects of God's wrath. What happens? Here's God. God says, I can take care of everything that you would ever imagine, anything you would ever hope for. And we say, no, God, we've got a better way. God, we've got better things. You create some pretty cool things down here. The Bible says in Romans 1, we'll get to in some weeks here, that we will trade the natural for the unnatural. That we'll be filled with all kinds of 
depravity. The Bible says that we, because of that state, became God-haters, we became insolent, disobedient. The Bible says that we created ways of doing evil. Why? Because we fell to the seduction of sin. And what did that lead to? The Bible says we are objects of God's wrath. God says, I will deal with sin. This all happened way back in the garden. It happened way back in the Garden of Eden. Because that's where the first breaking news took place. Think about it for a moment. Genesis chapter 3, we got man and woman hanging out in the garden. And what happens? They start looking around and Eve's out one day just hanging out in the garden. She loves the garden. The garden's a perfect place of happiness and contentment. And the devil comes. And the devil says to the woman, he says, hey, there's a tree in the middle of the garden. And God said, don't eat it. This is my paraphrase. And God said, God says, don't eat it. But the reason why God says don't eat it is because when you eat it, you become like him. That's the first seduction. The first seduction is that we're God. That we can be God. That we can make our own rules. That everything is all about us. That we worship ourselves, take care of ourselves, and not worry about anybody else. So he says, really? It, it, it'll make me like God. So she goes and she takes it. And she eats it. And then she brings it to the man. Dumb, dumb Adam. She says, woman, eat it. I'll eat it. Sean. He eats the apple. Or whatever fruit it may be. What happens? Here comes God. Man looks down. Woman looks down. Whoop, don't got any clothes on. Let's run for our lives. We hear God coming. And they go and they hide. And God says, stand, come on out. I want to talk with you. Genesis 3, 14 through 17 tells us that God began, because of their sin, to pronounce judgment and condemnation and curses. Women, that's why you feel the pain you do in childbirth, blame your mother Eve. Men, that's why we toil to work. That's why weeds grow. That's why we struggle. That's why brother fights against brother. All of those are curses of sin. But it's amazing in Genesis 3 15, he's pronouncing curses, man and woman. And then he comes to the serpent and he says, Serpent, you're going to slither or, or a bee on the ground, you're going to move on your belly. You're never going to do anything but eat the dust of the earth. And then what does he say? He says, The offspring of the woman and you will have enmity, a division. You will be at odds with one another for all of ages. And then he says, For her offspring will come. And he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. Let me tell you something. Right there, I can imagine in heaven, there was a little quick going, and angels in the wait a minute, breaking news, something happened. What did God just say? Wait a minute, they were dead in their trespasses and sin. And God comes, and what does he say? The breaking news, there's one that is coming. And he's going to take care of the sin and his death once and for all. And the devil, he's going to be taken care of. His head is going to be crushed. A fatal blow to a snake, it will be done. And the angels must have rejoiced in heaven by God's breaking news. Understand, if someone says that the gospel is only contained in the New Testament, they're dead wrong. The gospel is way back in the beginning. Where there was sin, there was the gospel. Never forget it. There was no lapse in time. There was no question about it. God had it there. He said, man's in trouble, we will redeem him. And he took care of it. Second thing we see this morning 
is that not only does this come to a uh, world that is seduced by sin, but it connects us to the only source of salvation. It connects us to our only source of salvation. If, we, if our desire is to hear news, and the news reporter gets on and says, I have news to share with you, the only way you're going to connect the breaking news that you want to hear, and your vote and the news itself, is to listen to what the news reporter says. He's connecting you with the information that you're looking for. But how sad is it that man has a place for God? And yet what he does, instead of listening to God, he fills up his heart and his mind and his life with everything else. So when the breaking news of the gospel comes in, he says, wait a minute, did I hear someone say something? I, I thought I heard someone say they had something. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I did. Maybe I was just thinking of stuff. And you miss it. Yet standing there like a bright light is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's sitting there and it's shining. And it's saying... This is your connection between God and you. This is your connection from eternal life, or from death to eternal life. This is it. This is what connects you. The gospel of God that Paul is talking about. Turn back to Romans 1. I'm going to sit there for a while now. Paul says, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What? What does this gospel of God mean? What does it involve? What is all about it? The first thing we see is it is a, uh, let me see what my notes say, a positive declaration. It is a positive declaration. Paul says that I'm set apart for the gospel. The word gospel is the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion, I'm pronouncing it phonetically, euangelion. And what that meant in first century Rome was glad tidings, good news. So when we say the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, we're not just making up some sort of name for it. Well, it's good news. That's what I think it is. No, that is what gospel means. In first century times, what that meant was, is when Caesar had good news to share, he would send them out to share the good news, the gospel. These people knew what this word meant. And what Paul is saying is, I don't have news from Caesar. And the, the history felt that Caesar didn't have much good to say very often anyway. But the good news wasn't from a man. But listen to what the text says. It is the good news of God. The gospel isn't mine. The gospel isn't yours. The gospel isn't village Bible churches. The gospel isn't conservative evangelicalism in here in America. The gospel isn't just an American thing. The gospel isn't a world thing. The gospel is God's and God's alone. It's His. He doesn't say, here, uh, I am set apart for my gospel. He says, God's gospel. This is God's good news. Why are we not listening? Why, is, why are we, the people of God, not rejoicing in that more? God has sent a message, a message of good news, that though we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus Christ was sent from heaven, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, sent to be born in a manger. He lived 33 uh, years of 
perfect life that he may be placed on the cross of Calvary. And by being placed on the cross of Calvary, he disarmed the powers of sin and death over my life and over yours, that you and I may be called the children of God. That's good news. Why? Because if we're not called the children of God, we are condemned for an eternity in a place called hell, where the Bible says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yet we command and we speak more often about what our neighbor did in allowing us to use his brand new uh, chainsaw or weed eater instead of talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. We commend our neighbor for the good things that he does instead of commending God who came to a world seduced by sin and changed our lives forever. What a positive declaration. In a world full of sin, he comes with the greatest news that you and I will ever hear. The second thing that we see, if this doesn't involve a positive declaration, but we see that it involves plenty of descriptions. The Bible is, I'm sorry, the Bible is quiet about the gospel. It describes the gospel. I want you to write these passages down for the sake of time. 1 Timothy 1.11 tells us that this gospel is a glorious gospel. This gospel isn't just, hey, here's some news, God has some news, and by the way, if you get to it, great, but if you didn't, you didn't miss much. This is a glorious gospel, the Apostle Paul says. Acts 20.24, Paul says, however, I consider my life worth nothing, if only that I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord has given me. This task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. What Paul is saying is, I am here to testify about the gospel of God. And let me tell you about it. You can't earn it. You can't go to church enough to get it. You can't walk enough ladies down the street to get the salvation. You can't work in your church long enough to get it. This gospel is by the free and unmerited favor of God. Romans 5 God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners... Christ died for us. While we were uh, in our sin, dead in our trespasses, God came and Jesus Christ died for us. Unmerited. You don't have to work to gain it. It's free. The next thing Paul says is in Romans 10, 15. He says, And how can they uh, preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. We've already talked about the good news, but Paul says now that, and this is the only person that will ever describe my feet as beautiful. He says, Tim, as you proclaim that, beautiful. This is beautiful. When you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, God says it is a beautiful thing. I believe it's what we've been created by God to do. If you've ever led anyone to the Lord, you know, you listen to anybody who's ever done it, and they will put as one of the greatest highlights in their life is leading someone to the salvation of Jesus Christ. There are few things in our world that we sit and say, well, I'd rather be here, I'd rather be there, but you know what? If I was to share the gospel with my friend or my family or to come to know Christ, what an amazing thing. God says it's beautiful. Next we see Ephesians 1.13. And you were also included in Christ, Paul says, when you heard the word of truth. The gospel is not a lie. The gospel is a promise that God says will be fulfilled. In Genesis 3.15, he said, hey, the offspring is coming. And it's going to be the 
Savior. It is going to be the Messiah and Jesus came. God fulfilled His promise. We're going to learn about that next week when we get into what this gospel is all about in verse 2. He promised it. But this promise is sure as well. I learned yesterday of a, uh, of a uh, woman from my old church, a saint who just passed away, had a massive stroke and died. And one of the great things that was said as soon as that was told to me by the gentleman was, isn't it wonderful that she's with her Lord and Savior today? That's what she wanted to be. And she's there. Folks, when we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, God says, I promise an eternity with me. And that's a promise that God himself gives to hope towards. It's as good as done. The next scripture we see is Romans 1.9. It says, God, who I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel. But then it says, of his son. This gospel isn't about what the disciples did. It's not about what the first century church was all about. This gospel wasn't about the prophets. It wasn't about uh, some of the big name preachers that we have in our time today or of those of yesteryear. This gospel is all about Jesus Christ. And sadly in our world today, there's too much preaching about us. There's too much preaching about taking care of my needs and not enough preaching of Jesus Christ. Paul said, let me be known to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is that? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the message. If you find yourself listening to someone and you hear a lot about other things and they're full on the radio, you hear them all the time, when they're not saying anything about Jesus, you're not hearing the gospel. You're hearing someone with sanctimonious and sanctified talk about the world and its politics and the world and its psychology. Paul says, let us preach Christ and Him crucified. That's the gospel. Next we see Romans 1.16. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why am I not ashamed of this good news? Because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. What that saying is, the gospel is the conduit for salvation. It is the power of God. When you declare the gospel, you are declaring not just the words of God, but the very power of God that awakens the heart of an unbeliever so that they can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is seen throughout Scripture. The next thing we see is that it involves not only uh, plenty of descriptions, but it's seen in powerful displays. The greatest thing that we see on this side of heaven is the change that the gospel has in the life of the people that it's changed. Just think about it for a moment. We're all here. And the number one thing that we have in common isn't what cars we drive or what town we live in or our makeup in growing up. It's not our social economic status or who we are or where we work or, or anything like that. The number one common denominator we have here is that we have been saved by this gospel. But here's the amazing thing. Please hear me. The amazing thing is, is that that same gospel that we all received by, uh, by grace through faith had different effects on us. Now, first of all, the same effect is that that we are saved. But think about this for a moment. If I was to poll us as a body this morning and said, what changes happened to you after you were saved? 
One may say, well, I was involved in sexual immorality. And when I was led to Jesus Christ, I turned away from that. And I followed Christ. For others, it would be my anger. It was out of control, my temper. But I met Jesus, and that is gone. My wife probably would not have a problem with me sharing this. But before she came to know Christ, she struggled with cursing. My wife, beautiful Amanda. She had, at times, a mouth like a sailor. <laughs> but you know what? She's going to get in trouble now. But you know what? God changed her. And took words out of her mouth and placed praises of God into her. That's the power of the gospel. We've all seen the gospel. But it has an incredible change in your life that is different than anyone else. And that display that you have is different. And that's why God says, let us shine like a city on a hill. Let us be that salt in the world. Why? Because when we share with people the gospel of Jesus Christ, they may say, you know what? That's old history. I don't even listen to that. But let me tell you this. Think about this for a moment. Paul comes, and he's a changed man. He persecuted the church. He goes from this road to Damascus. He's changed. And people, he goes and he says, hey, I'm all about the gospel now of Jesus Christ. And you know what people would say? Whatever, Paul. Whatever. And then one year passes, and Paul gets up and says, I'm all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they say, well, whatever, Paul. I don't know what happened to you. Maybe you're under some spell or something. But then year two, year three, year five, year ten, and Paul keeps getting up and saying, I'm about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people say, wait a minute. This gospel, something changed Paul. What is it? Think about it. The man that persecuted the church goes on the road to go do more persecuting. Acts 9 says he was still bringing out murderous threats against the Christians. He walks to Damascus. He heads north in the city, and what happens? He sees a light, and this light speaks to him, and it blinds him. And from that moment on, he says, I'm not going to persecute the church anymore, but I'm going to pursue Christ. And what must have happened in the lives of Paul's parents and, their, and his friends said, wait a minute. Paul has changed. And when we live for the gospel, what people sit there and say is, wait a minute, Tim used to live this way, but now he lives this way. And it's not that it just doesn't change, like Tim goes on diets and then gets off on what he's done going on a diet. This one, stop. Wait a minute. He's changed. What is he pointing to? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest display. That is the greatest witness that we can have the Bible. Say this. People have said that uh, who can debate a changed life? And if we as Christians would just live the changed life that we preach about, that we talk about in our churches, then people would wonder what changed in that that we would point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's seen in a powerful display, not just by Christians, but please hear this. We see that the gospel. And the person and work of Jesus Christ is greater than all philosophers. Think about this for a moment. Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato for 50. Aristotle for another 40. Yet Jesus' ministry was all about the gospel. And in a matter of three years, less than three years, Jesus' teaching about this gospel has a greater effect and more world renown than the combined 130 years of the greatest philosophers of all time. Jesus took three years, and it changed the world. 
is greater than any painter. Jesus never painted a picture. Yet the gospel, Jesus Christ coming as God to earth to be a man to die for us, was the finest painting that Raphael, Michelangelo, and Da Vinci ever painted. And they're the ones that we look at with great admiration. He was greater than any poet. Jesus never wrote any poetry. But Dante, Milton, and scores of others have written some of their greatest poetry about this gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus never played a song. Jesus never picked up a guitar. We don't know that he did at all. And started strumming, shine, Jesus, shine. The Lord, lift, lift your name on high. He probably didn't even sing Kumbaya. And yet, even though he was no musician, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, Mendelssohn had some of their greatest music dedicated to who? Jesus Christ. Even the world that says no to God has found their greatest inspiration in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they turn to it. He is incomparable. And his news is the greatest thing we will ever see or hear. The gospel is the only news for our hope for intimacy with God. The gospel is the only hope for humanity. The gospel is the only thing that will change sinners and make them saints. It will make us sons of God. Finally, we see it converts the sinner. This good news converts the sinner to a proper response to the Savior. How do we get there? As we continue in our series next week, we'll look at verses 2 through 4 and center more on this idea of the gospel being centered on Christ Jesus. With the time I have left, I want to look at four responses that you can have to the gospel this morning. The first one you can have, the first response to this gospel, is one that is antagonistic. You can be antagonistic towards the gospel. Paul is a perfect uh, picture of being an antagonist in his life as Saul. An antagonist means you are defiant against it. You are at odds with it. And there are people within your family, there are people within your uh, workplace, in your school, that any time the gospel is brought up, any time Jesus is brought up, they say, I don't want to hear it. I want nothing to do with it. Get that garbage out of here. I told you some years ago we were at a Christmas uh, party, and I put on some uh, Christmas music. What I mean by Christmas music is Christmas music that had Jesus in it. And one of my family members said, turn that garbage off. Turn it off. Let's get some jingle bells in here. Let's get some Santa come riding in on a red nosed reindeer in here. I don't want to hear about a little town of Bethlehem. I don't want to hear about joy to the world. I don't want that. We have people in our life that are that way. And you sit there and you say, Tim, there's no way some of you are living with that type of person right now. They sit there and say, I don't want nothing to do with God. You know what you do? Don't think that they're hopeless. Because the book of Romans was written by a man who everyone would have said that Saul from Tarsus is hopeless. But here's the gospel. The gospel is so powerful and so profound that it changed the greatest hater of Christianity and turned him around and changed his life and made him the greatest messenger of the cross. You say, but that never happened. Let me tell you something. Paul killed Christians. And in a matter of split second. Jesus Christ appeared to him, and that's all it took. Paul couldn't even put up a fight. He said, wait a minute. It's you, Jesus. The one who I persecuted. That's what we need to be praying for, for our antagonistic friends. 
that God would just like Saul on the road to Damascus on the Eisenhower Expressway or in their cubicle at work, the power of Almighty God would appear to them and say, stop fighting me and come to know my son, Jesus Christ. That should be our prayer for those antagonistic friends that we have. Because Paul was changed and your friend or your family member can be changed in a split second as well. The second thing we see is one that is apathetic to him. That is apathetic to him. We have people, many are at this place. They, they won't yell at you about the gospel. They won't say, get it out of here. The word apathetic literally just means that you don't really care. And that's where a lot of people are at. I talk with a lot of people, and I tell them about Jesus, and you know what they said? That may be good for you. That's good, Tim. If that makes you happy, good for you. I'm happy. I want you to be happy. That's good. But for me, eh, I've got my self-help books. I listen to Oprah, Dr. Bill, when, she, when he's on the show. And, and they help me. And they give me the help that I need, and, and I'm blessed. And I, I don't even really worry about Jesus. And you know what? The Bible's full of people who are involved in the details of their lives, who found themselves doing things for themselves, who pursued the things of this world. And you know what God did? God changed them. And God said, I'm going to give you a mission. I think of Gideon. Gideon in the Old Testament, scared to death of the enemy of the Lord that was coming, the armies that were coming against the people of the Lord. And he finds himself and he's doing absolutely nothing with his life and God changes him. I think about David sitting on a countryside hill watching the sheep and just kind of hanging out and, and not sure what's going to go on. He's a young man and God comes and he says, you know what, I'm going to make you something. I'm going to make you king. You're going to be a man after my own heart. I think of uh, people like Abraham in the Ur of the Chaldeans just hanging out in northern Iraq. And God says, you know what? Hey, I want you to come to a place I have for you, and I'm going to make out of you a great nation. God keeps the, uh, the small things of this world, the people that don't have a lot going for them, the apathetic people that there's no passion, and God puts a passion into their life and changes them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third one is, is that there are those who are attracted to the gospel, that are attracted. This is the one that concerns me the most. Because the antagonist, they're outside of the church. The one that's apathetic probably is waiting for the Bears game to start in a couple of hours here. But the one who's attracted is the one that could be sitting in this pew today. And when that person is an attractive, there's this idea that something draws you to that. And there are people today who are drawn to church for millions of reasons. It's not the gospel, but it's other things. And you know, it's, it, it's best illustrated. I, I saw a movie some time ago called uh, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. There you go. <laughs> and in the movie, it's a NASCAR movie, and, and, and pretty much it's a waste of your time, but there's one part of the movie that I think is the way he does this is quite funny. Some of you may say, well, my goodness, Pastor, you're, you're a little sacrilegious, but I think it's kind of funny, but I think it, it, the funniness wears off when you think about that's where the world's at. They're sitting around the dining room table, and they're about to say grace. And this Ricky Bobby goes and he says, and he's going to sit down and he's going to pray. And he says, dear Lord, baby Jesus. And they ask, why are you praying to baby Jesus? He grew up. I, I like the Christmas Jesus better. So he goes down and he brings a dear 
you know what? There's a part of Ricky Bobby in Christianity today. And you know what it is? There's a certain part of Jesus that we like. I like the Christmas Jesus, he said. A lot of people like the Christmas and Easter Jesus. They just don't like to hear about the Good Friday Jesus. They like the Jesus that's like a celestial Santa Claus. That gives and gives and gives. And when he's done giving, he gives some more. But they don't want to hear about the wrathful Jesus. They want to hear about the Jesus that would come on a white horse and destroy the enemies of God in Revelation. We're attracted to the part of Jesus that we like, not the true Jesus. Millions of people flock to churches. And they hear sanctified talks about positive thinking and about how to make a better way in this world. But we never hear the subject of sin. We never hear the word beloved. We never hear the word cross. We never hear propitiation. We don't hear the words that are the words of God that say you were dead. And if you're going to remain dead, there's a place. Another word we don't hear is hell. And because of that sin, you're separated from God. We hear, hey, Jesus loves you. Hey, Jesus wants you to have a good job. Jesus wants you to have a good house. Jesus wants you to have... That is the Christmas Jesus. And if that's what we believe, we're attracted to it. Jesus did this all the time. What would happen? He would feed 5,000. That's kind of the greatest food. Let's go see Jesus again. You know, I heard when he was out in Palestine, what he did was this, he did some cool signs. Some cool miracles. Let's go see Jesus. And what would Jesus do? Jesus would go and say, okay, you know my disciples? Eat my flesh and blood. Try that on your size. You want to follow me? Don't worry about the miracles. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your arm. You want to follow me. Jesus said things that were offensive to people. Why? Because there were a lot of people in his day who were attracted to him, but didn't want to believe. The final one, I've got to close this out, is that we need people who are attached to the gospel. Let's go back to Romans 1. I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Why is Paul a servant? Because he's attached to the gospel. Why was Paul living out a life as an apostle? Because he was attached to the gospel. Why was he set apart? Because he was attached to the gospel. I don't want Village Bible Church to be a place that is attracted to Jesus. I want people to walk out of here that are willing to tell the world that anyone who will listen, I am attached to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will tell you, we will never change one life if all we do is attract Because you know what will happen? People will come and they'll wait for one attraction after another and after another. And after we blow our budget, after we spend all the money that we have and pull up all these great attractions, at the end, you know what people will do? They'll say, well, let's go down the street and we'll find another attraction. If you give them the gospel of Jesus Christ and you share the gospel with them, it will change their life. It will revolutionize the way they look at themselves and the way they look at God. We need people. Paul says, I'm set apart for the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, are you ashamed of that gospel? You amen here. You clap here. You rejoice here. But the question is, you do that in the workplace. You go to your work and to your school and say, I am not ashamed of this gospel. This gospel is the only hope for us. I want this church. I plead that this church will be a people who are attached to the gospel. Another A, if you like alliteration, who are arrested by the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Paul did those things. Why? Because he had fallen in love with the gospel. Where are you at today? Where are you at? Are you an antagonist? God wants to change your life. If you're at that, God wants to give you a passion for his son and the gospel that he's given you. Turn to Jesus. In your anger, turn to Jesus and say, I don't want to be angry anymore. I'm tired of living this life like I am. I want something new. And God will give it to you. Pray that God would take away your sin. Pray that God would take away all that unrighteousness so that you will be, be imbued the righteousness of Christ. And even more, are you attracted to the gospel? Does God do something for you? Does he tickle some fancy? The Bible says in the last days that people will imagine themselves people who will tickle their itching ears. And we have a lot of pulpits today that find themselves doing that. Don't be attracted to the flow of Christianity. Be attracted to dying to self and taking up the cross of Jesus Christ. The reason why we spent three weeks on verse 1 is because these are the kinds of disciples that we want. Disciples who were like the Apostle Paul, who said, to death, it is gain. To live for Christ is gain. And if that means I die proclaiming Christ, then I die with a grin on my face because I'm deceived my Savior. Don't be attracted to it. Be attached to the gospel. Because when you are, that is where we will see the greatest news we've ever been a part of. It is the great news that God has brought to a broken world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your time today in this word. Father, we thank you for your word. That your word is the gospel. It is the good news. It is the good news that man can be saved. It is the good news that our sins can be atoned for. It is the good news that can take us from our depths of depression, our trouble with the depravity of this world. It is the good news that takes us from that and places us into your family. It is the good news that takes us from all our issues and dysfunctions and it brings us and it sets us before you as the children of God. I thank you for this good news. For the impact that it's had in my life. I thank you for this good news. For the impact that it's had in this church. Let us not grow weary, Father, in sharing the good news of the world around us. That Sugar Grove and the Kane County area would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And we know there will be different responses. But let us never be ashamed in proclaiming that until you come to take us home. To you be the glory. To you be the honor and the praise for this good news that you brought, the gospel of God. Let it be forever on our lips and all God's people said, Amen.